Pray with me. Most glorious God in heaven, as we read your word, we are truly overwhelmed at your splendor, at your majesty. And our focus is shifted from our own problems and our own concerns and our own agendas. And our gaze is shifted to you. And we have seen, even in your word, just a glimpse of your glory. And we want more. We want more of your presence. We want more of you, Jesus. You are our sustainer. You are our healer, our redeemer. And we are so hungry and thirsty for you. I pray that we would have the eyes to see you today. And that we would leave this place with a deeper awareness of who you are and who we are and why you've made us. And may we, like Isaiah, say, here am I, send me. That's our heart's desire. So I pray that you would do a powerful work through your spirit in our hearts this morning. And we pray it for your glory and for our own blessing in the name of our King Jesus. Amen. The Holy Spirit inspired the prophet Isaiah in the second half of the 8th century B.C. to write the book of Isaiah. So this was about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Uh, we just saw in verse 1, Isaiah begins, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now, in your own time, if you want to read in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, it describes the 52-year reign of King Uzziah and what he did and how he was a very powerful king. And arguably, he was the best king since Solomon, who, had, who was gone 200 years before King Uzziah at that point. Many advancements and much power. I mean, it was, he was a very influential king, and yet... For all of his achievements, King Uzziah, towards the end of his life, rebelled against God. And in his rebellious sin, he was struck with leprosy. He died under God's condemnation. And this mighty King Uzziah died a leper, is what we see in 2 Chronicles 26. And so when you read here that the year that King Uzziah died, this is a very significant time in Israel's history. But very sadly, it was no different than any other king before him because most of the kings were quite corrupted and quite sinful and rebellious. And the people of God continually followed the example and the leading of their king. And Uzziah was no different. And so what you have is the nation of Israel at this point in the 8th century B.C. was just immersed in idolatry. They were very far from God. If you read in chapters 1 through 5, it describes, for example, chapter 1, verse 2. God says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And so God is a father who's saying, I've loved my children, and they've rebelled. They're running away from me. And then also chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, he says, bring no more vain offerings. He says, for they have become a burden to me. God is saying, I'm sick and tired of your offerings. I'm tired of your, your religious expressions and how on the outside you do all the religious stuff and you want to look good by going to the temple and making your offerings and your hearts are so far from me. 
He's like, I'm, I'm, wear, I'm worn out. I'm tired of them. I'm tired of your religiosity. He's like, your vain offerings. He's tired of the appearance of religion and yet hearts that don't love God. In chapter 5, verses 24 and 25, it says, they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. They have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. And so they had rejected God. They have despised his word. They had offended the Holy One. And so God's anger, his righteous indignation was burning against his very own people. And so if you read the first five chapters, and it continues even after that, what you're seeing is the same theme repeated that Israel is very much far from God. In chapter 5, Israel is described as a vineyard. And God is this gardener who is going through his vineyard and he's looking for fruit. But there is none. There's only bad fruit. There's only wild grapes. There's, there's no good fruit. And so God's people are, de- are depicted as so far, so lost in their idolatry and in their immorality that they're bearing nothing but bad fruit. And God had had enough. And so in chapter 5, he issues woes. He says, woe is my people, repeatedly. There's this repetition of condemnation that's coming, and exile is coming. For the northern kingdom of Israel, it would come in 722 B.C. with the nation of Assyria. And in 586 B.C., it would come for the kingdom of Judah and the, and the people of Babylon. We take in exile. And God is promising, exile is coming. You're going to be cut off. But do you think people of Israel were worried? Were they concerned about their external religion, but their hearts far from God? Do you think they were concerned about God's call for repentance and how judgment is coming? Nope. They weren't concerned one They were living their lives, maintaining the appearances, enjoying their idols, very far from God. They had no idea who God was, no idea who they were to be in relation to him. Quite honestly, 8th century Israel was very much like 21st century Abu Dhabi. People were focused on their own pleasures and their own pursuits. They were just going about their lives, doing their thing, living for the weekend, living for sexuality, living for their appearance, living for the 401k, their retirement funds, living for their savings, living for their vacations, living for their whatever, and they were just living for themselves with no idea that there is a holy God and what their calling was and how they were to relate to him and be a light unto the nations. And so you find Israel in a very bad place. And in this context of a very dark time where judgment is promised and is coming, in chapter 6, God calls Isaiah. He calls his prophet in the middle of people that were so desperate for God's grace and yet didn't even know it. They had no idea how desperate they were for God's grace. And Isaiah is called to speak, to proclaim the greatness of God. And he is given, we just read, this spectacular vision of God. And it's a vision of God that we must rediscover today. Abu Dhabi is desperate for this 
rediscovering of this grand vision of who God is and why it matters and hearts and lives are gripped and transformed only by God's sovereign presence. And so let me give you the main idea from this text that we just read. So there's a context. Let me give you the primary truth that we see here. It's that God's glory is revealed through the transformed lives of his people. So what you're seeing here is Isaiah was transformed. And so God is revealing his glory through the transformed lives of his people. See, Isaiah saw God. He saw God in all of his glory And his response was, woe is me. But then through this experience, this encounter with God, he ends by saying, here am I, send me. Complete transformation. So what happened to Isaiah? How is he transformed? How did he go from woe is me to God, I want to go, use me. I want to serve you. I want to be your ambassador. I want to tell others about your greatness. I want to live for your glory. What happened to Isaiah that transformed him. We need to see this text more clearly and and discover what God has for us today. But God is, make no mistake, he is displaying his magnificence through the lives of his people. So as we begin to look at this text more carefully, do you desire to experience true transformation in your life? And I was talking about self-help. I'm not talking about surface-level behavior modification. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about profound, true, deep, genuine, lasting change where your heart and mind has been changed with new desires. Do you truly want transformation? Amen. Do you want freedom from your habitual patterns of sin? Do you want healing from those deep wounds that were inflicted on you, maybe your own doing or someone else's, I don't know, but most of us carry wounds. And do you want those wounds healed? Do you want true peace? Do you want eternal meaning and significance and lasting joy? Joy that no matter what the doctor says about the report, even if you're grieving, you're not undone. Joy that even when things are not going your way and it's really painful and disappointing, you are not left undone because of a sovereign God's presence and true transformation that has taken deep root in your life. That's what we're seeing here in Isaiah. Hopefully it's not just me. I'm sure you can relate to this. Do you sometimes feel like your sin is just too big? Like your sin is just so great. Maybe you're struggling to, to think, man, my sin, my temptations are just so big, so powerful. I just can't overcome them. There's good news. You know what the good news is? That God's grace is greater than your sin. God's grace is so much greater than your sin. Your sin is no match for the grace of God. And we have to know and believe this. And by the power of his spirit, ask him to help to apply this in our hearts. And we'll see how that happens this morning. There is hope and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. He is our king, our master, the Messiah. 
He is the head of this church. We love him because he first loved us. So in Isaiah 6, we see genuine transformation possible only through the grace of God, which is ultimately, we know, found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so let's meditate on these verses and let's see God's path to transformation. Number one, if you're taking notes, God's path to true transformation. Number one, starting point, is a big vision of God. If you want to really experience deep, lasting change, the first thing we have to come to grips with is a big vision of God. Verse 1, again, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Isaiah sees this breathtaking vision of God as he's sitting in his temple. The great, powerful, innovator King Uzziah is dead. And yet, the true king is alive, and he's sitting on his throne. He's alive and well and ruling powerfully. It says he is high and lifted up. God is exalted above everything and everyone else. The picture here is there is nothing and no one above God. He is the highest. He's high and lifted up. He's being portrayed here as being really big. God is not small. It says that just the back of his royal robes, just to train, just the back part of his royal garments are filling the whole temple. That's how big he is. Can you, can you begin to see this picture of what's being displayed through this beautiful, poetic, prophetic picture of God? That the, the temple in Jerusalem was just a, a copy. It was just a model of the real one that was in heaven. And so here's this vision that Isaiah is getting, and God is grand, and he's majestic, and he's the king, and he's on his throne. He has supreme power and authority and sovereignty, and there is no one and nothing above him. He is supreme. He stands alone, is what we're seeing here, high and exalted. Verses 2 and 3, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Amen. Seraphim were these majestic angelic beings. Now, the the name seraphim literally means burning ones. And so we can get the picture. If you can imagine, use your imagination. God gave you one. Use it. It's good to imagine. And he says that they're these burning ones, so their appearance must have been that of consuming fire, to use this language. Now understand, Isaiah, I mean, poor Isaiah, he's seeing this vision of things that are so beyond anything on this earth that he's just grasping with human language to try to describe what he's seeing, and it's really impossible. There's no way that our limited human language could ever begin to grasp the infiniteness of God and what Isaiah was seeing in this throne room in the temple, this vision of God. But what he does see is these burning, angelic, superhuman beings. And he realized that he is in awe of what he's seeing. 
and the seraphim are covering their faces. And so even these angelic beings are humbled before a holy God. It's like trying to stare at God is like trying to stare at the sun directly in the Abu Dhabi summer where it's 55 degrees and you're melting. And you want to look up at the sun and you can't. It's painful. You can't do it. Now think about that. At the infinite level is what God is like. You can't even look at him. His holiness, his, he's so splendid. You just have to humble yourself and cover your eyes in his presence. And even the seraphim do that. And they say that he is holy, 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 saying it three times as, as emphasis, the superlative. So they're emphasizing that he is holy. But how do you even define that? Have you ever stopped to think, how do you even define God's holiness? Honestly, again, our language fails us. Our language is woefully inadequate when talking about who God is. So any attempt to define the holiness of God, I mean, ultimately, after all your explanations, you know where you arrive? God is holy means that God is God. That's, that's what it is, but... Let me explain what I'm trying to tell you. The word holy, the word holy itself, the word means separate or set apart, even to cut. And so being cut away from, being separate from, so all of these different thoughts captures the word holy. So to be holy means to be set apart. And so in the Bible, the word holy describes lots of things that are set apart and devoted to God. And so whenever something is set apart from common use, and it's devoted, set apart for God, devoted to him, that is holy. And so, for example, Bible has holy ground and holy assemblies, a holy nation, holy garments, holy people, holy scriptures, a holy faith. And so what makes these things or people holy? When something or someone is set apart and devoted to God for his purposes, then that person or that thing is holy. It's set apart. But what can you set apart God from that makes him holy? Like God by his very nature is already set apart. He's not part of creation. He stands above and beyond. He created it by just speaking. And so God at his very godness, his very nature, he is separate already from creation. He's set apart. He stands alone. God is holy. He is totally separate and distinct from anything that you're going to see here on earth. But all we've said is that God is holy is that God is God. Exactly. God is holy. His very essence, who he is, is holy. That's what he is. Perfectly pure. Complete perfection. No darkness whatsoever in him. So you have moral purity. His divine essence. His infinite value. His glorious perfections. This is all we're grasping at English words to try to capture an infinite God in our words, just, we don't have enough of them. And I love words, and I'm telling you, we don't have the right words to even capture what God is like. 
but he in his essence, at his godness, his absolute holiness. Holiness defines who he is and what he does. And so at the end of our language, we are just humbled and in awe of our God who is utterly and infinitely glorious and holy. This is who our God is. Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He is infinitely valuable because he is holy. And there are people in our world, and you know who they are, who don't know God. And they'll say things like, well, if there is a God, whenever I die, he'll be happy to see me when they get to heaven or whatever you call it because I'm a good person. And if I've done anything wrong, he'll forgive me because that's his job. And many people have a very small vision of God, a tiny vision of God, a God who they believe exists to give them what they want, a God who doesn't care if we sin, a God who won't ask anything of you, because he's just like a, like a jolly old grandfather who has a bunch of candy in his pocket. And he just likes to give his, his grandkids candy. And, and the grandkids never get disciplined because that's mom and dad's job. Grandpa just loves his grandkids. And we think of God like that. He doesn't care. He just loves us. However, he has no expectations. He's not holy. He's just a jolly old grandpa. It's a very small vision of God. We need a much grander, a really big vision of God rooted in the Scriptures. We need to rediscover a vision of God that is so big that our minds and our words can't hardly even get around it. And in verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. When you see even just a glimpse of the glory of God, the foundation of your lives are going to shake. You'll be changed. I want my world shaken up. I like to be in control. That's the problem. I like to know where I'm going. This is why it was so hard for me three years ago when we first moved here because I didn't know where I was going, and the GPS was not helping me. It was getting me more lost than it was helping me. And I want to know exactly where I'm going. I want to be in the right lane at the right time. I want to use my blinker and have everyone else use their signal too. So I know where they're going, which here in Abu Dhabi, no one uses their signals. And so you never know who's going to cut you off. And so you, you live driving so cautious. And is he coming over here? Is he coming over here? Okay, he's not. And you're just constantly on the defensive, which is a good thing. But I don't like that. I want to be in control. And so I want to be driving, and I want to know exactly where I'm going. But that is not the way we're to follow Jesus. Because if you want to be in complete control of what your life looks like, you're going to go where you want to go, and God has something so much bigger planned for you. But you can't be in control. You can't be driving. Let God drive. And he won't give you a blinker. 
He won't give you the signal. He won't tell you where he's going to turn. But you trust him. That he's taking you where he wants to take you. And it's so much better and grander and more glorious than where you would want to go if it was up to you. It begins with a really big vision of God. We talk about his glory. God's glory is his heaviness. But the word kind of is, is capturing. Glory is like the full weight. And so God's glory is his heaviness of his powerful presence, his excellence on display. Do you see it? As we read Isaiah 6, are you getting a glimpse of the glory of God? May we see it. May we not be blinded by the things of this world, blinded by the attractions of this world that we're so blind that we don't even see that God is worthy and he, because he is worthy, he desires our affections and our allegiance and our obedience. He is worthy of your everything. We need a really big vision of God. That's where it starts. Transformation begins there with seeing God for who he is, and he is holy. Number two, transformation. The path to transformation, number two, is the deep awareness of sin. So if you want to be transformed deep inside, number one, you need to have a big vision of God. Number two, a deep awareness of sin. Verse five. And I said, woe is me, for I'm lost I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the presence, in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah sees God in his splendor and how big he is, Isaiah responds with despair. He's like, woe is me. He's like, I am lost. I'm going to be cut off. He says, I'm ruined, I'm destroyed. Sometimes I say undone. This is all capturing the word of being cut off, being destroyed. So he's realizing he's in despair. Woe is me, I'm going to die. He knows that he can't be in God's presence. And he sees how sinful he is. He knows his guilt before God. By seeing the holiness of God, he recognizes how deep his sin is. And it's interesting. I, I had to meditate at this for a while this week on, okay, so he's recognizing his sin, his guilt before a holy God. He's saying, I'm lost, I'm ruined, I have no hope. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And everyone around me, all people also are of unclean lips. So there's this confession. And he talks about his speech. Fascinating that he uses his speech to describe his guilt before God. I mean, in the same book, Isaiah chapter 3, just two chapters before, 3 verse 8, as God is going to judge his people, he says, because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, denying his glorious presence. And so denying God's glorious presence is connected to speech. How we talk. What we say is a reflection of what is inside, which is why Jesus made it clear. Jesus said that out of the abundance of the heart speaks the mouth. And so what we say 
is quite simply just coming from what's deep inside. And Isaiah was aware of how deep his sin went. And he saw the king in his glory. He was sensing the heaviness of God's holiness and glory. And he's just left awestruck and undone. In the presence of God, he's just literally coming apart at the seams. He's just there, and he's so small and so humble before a big and glorious God. He's aware of how deep his sin goes. And my question is, do you want transformation? We must be like Isaiah. We must have a very deep awareness of our sin. If we have a very shallow awareness of our sin, we won't experience transformation. We'll stay the same. If you think your sin is shallow, you're not going to change. God will begin through the Spirit to change you when you get a big vision of God and a deep awareness of your sin. Are you trying to liberate yourself from the constraints of, say, your young person here, of your teachers or your coaches, or of your parents? Do you feel like mom and dad are the problem? The problem in my life is my father. He's too strict. Or my mother, she checks my phone to see my messages. I'm glad they do. Parents, if you're not checking your youth's phone, you're not being a good parent. Check their phone. Teenager. You don't own that phone. You don't pay the bill. You didn't buy the phone in the first place. It's not yours. It's on loan from your mom and dad. And they have free reign to look at it. And they need to look at it. Why? Because God is holy. We have a holy God, and he wants to have holy people. And none of us is ever going to reach holiness unless we have a deep awareness of our sin. And your father and your mother are not the problem. And getting free from their authority is not going to give you freedom. Because you know what's going to happen when you're 18 and you're on your own? You're under God's authority directly. Right now you have your parents represent God to you. This is a huge blessing. You're not going to be free whenever you graduate and go off to university. You're not. But maybe you're the adult in the room, and, and you're the one that has the teenagers driving you crazy. But quite honestly, maybe you want freedom from your constraints. Maybe it's your wife or your husband, and you think that your marriage is just constraining you. Or maybe it's some other responsibility, and you want to run away. And you're just like that teenager. You want freedom from the constraints in your life. Maybe you want freedom from the constraints of morality. And you think, oh, if I can just define what's right and wrong, and I can have my own selfish pleasures and my preferences and my agenda so I can live out however I want, and this constraints of morality is just too binding for me. I want freedom. Are you looking for acceptance, affection, meaning, respect, joy under every tree and rock of this world? You won't find it. It's not there. 
you want true transformation, you have to look beyond this world. You, have to, you need something so much more transcendent that goes far beyond what we see around us. The more that we drink from the well of this world, the more thirsty we get. The more we run towards godless pleasure, the further we get from fulfillment. The more that we pursue freedom, the more that we become enslaved to sin. Our world is promising you joy and freedom and satisfaction. All of these promises that the world is offering, and it's all a lie. It's a lie, and we believe it. And we all do it. A deep awareness of our sin reminds us that the only way that we're going to find true joy is in Christ. What we need is to be rescued. Teenager or grown up in the room. What we need is to be rescued and his name is Jesus. We need to experience something so much greater and more profound and more satisfying. We need something truly transcendent from above to come and rescue and to change us. And if you're in the room today and if you think that you're basically a good person, trying to follow the rules, trying to be a good Christian, and you're a good person on your own, and you don't realize your need for God's grace, You're in a very precarious position. And what you need is to repent of your sin and trust in Jesus alone. He'll change you. His spirit will come into you. When we see God for who he is, it exposes us for who we are. Condemned sinners who are truly desperate for his grace. So we must come face to face with the holy, glorious God who then helps us see who we are, like Isaiah said, lost, ruined, without hope apart from God. The path to transformation, number one, a big vision of God. Number two, a deep awareness of our own sin. And number three, an experience of God's grace. You must experience the grace of God to have deep transformation. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken the tongue from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Praise God. Do you know what we just read? There's this altar and he grabs his tongue and he takes the coal and he touches his lips. This is, this is the vision. It's not literal, but what's being described is very true. In this beautiful vision, what you're seeing here is it says, your guilt is removed and your sin atoned for. Atonement means that the debt of sin is covered, paid in full. And so what you're seeing here in this symbolic act, his guilt for sin was removed and he was cleansed from that sin. This is a foreshadow pointing to the gospel of Jesus Christ who on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice. This altar is pointing to 
foreshadowing fulfilled in the final sacrifice that we read about earlier in the gathering from Hebrews 10, the once for all sacrifice, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away our sins. Only the blood of Jesus can take away our sins because only he was sinless. Only he perfectly obeyed and is fully human. He represented you and me on the cross, but being fully God, he never sinned and he died and he paid it in full. He was our sacrifice and he's resurrected, proving that he is God and he conquered sin and the debt was paid in full. What we're seeing here points to Jesus, our Savior. And anyone that repents of their sin and trusts in Jesus experiences eternal life, salvation, hope, joy, and the beginning of being transformed. Why did Jesus have to die? It was the only way. It was the only way for you and me to be reconciled to God. God is holy. He can't ignore sin. He's not like us that we ignore sin. God is holy. He demands a payment, and Jesus paid it all. God's grace is greater than your sin. And Isaiah's name says it all. The name Isaiah means the Lord will save. God is faithful to his promises. He displays his glory by saving people and then changing them to be holy how he is holy. Without him, we're lost and ruined. Verse 8, as we wrap things up, our time is very brief. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He was passionate about God's glory. He wanted to tell others about the forgiveness that's available. He wanted others to worship God. He wasn't trying to earn God's favor. He already had it. He already had God's approval. And because of that, now he's responding because he wants to please God. He wasn't doing religious things to earn God's favor. This isn't religious duty. This is the gospel. This is transformation through the power of the Spirit with Christ's work on the cross available to us today. This is what we want is to be a God-saturated people who are red-hot worshipers of Jesus, who have a passion, who are saying, Send me. I want to go tell others. Because people who don't know are lost and condemned how I was lost and ruined and undone. And it's our privilege to be sent out to talk to our friends and neighbors and co-workers and be bold with the gospel. There would be a God-saturated missionary church. All of us are missionaries We're about the mission of glorifying God by making and developing disciples. But sometimes we get preoccupied with things of this world. Our vision goes towards our own issues or we get into a sinful pattern and then we're not being used by God. Listen, the problem is not that your sin is too big. The problem is that your God is too small. And if we have a bigger vision of God and a deeper awareness of our sin, it will lead us to being like Isaiah, on fire missionaries saying, whatever the cost, send me, use me. 
he experienced God's grace. And that's what propelled him. You grow in Christ the same way you came to Christ. You experienced God's grace. You repented and you believed. And so now that sets the pattern of every single day God's grace is available to you. It's there. His grace is there. Well, you have to just focus on him and repent all over again of our new sins and trust him afresh. Enjoy his presence and we'll see him change us. A big vision of God, deep awareness of sin, and experience of God's grace is the only way that we'll be changed. May we be transformed for his glory. Pray with me. Father, you are so holy. As you see in your word, these angelic burning ones cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is full of your glory. And that's what we want. We want to see your glory displayed through ECC off-island. I pray for anyone here in the room that has never trusted in you. May they even now cry out to you, repent of their sins, and place their lives in your hands and entrust themselves to you. I pray for those of us that do know you, that we would pursue you. Like Isaiah saying, send me. Father, send us. Use us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for our King Jesus and your Spirit's presence in our lives. Thank you. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.